We are quickly coming to the end of our exposition of this letter. We're taking our time through Paul's final exhortations here in Ephesians chapter 6 that we might understand them well. As we opened up last week in verses 10 through 13, we were reminded that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against things that we can't see. And as I said to you last week, that's a little odd for our modern ears. We are people of a physical world. We can see and taste and touch, and those are the things that compel us. Those are the things that that call out attention. But Paul understood well that he, along with the church in Ephesus and all the believers of his day, were wrestling against an opposition that they could not see, and this was far more dangerous than what they could see. And so we too today, two millennia later, face the same reality. I think sometimes we tend to romanticize the reality of satanic forces, Satan himself and all those under his sway, and here's what I mean by that. We tend to think that there's this pernicious, seemingly little evil guy running around out there, and every once in a while he'll perch on our shoulder. You've seen this back in old popular cartoons of the day. He'll, he'll perch on our shoulder and he'll whisper in our ear that we should do this or that. That he's frustrated with the people of God and seeks to trip them up from time to time. That he likes to make life difficult for us. That he likes to keep us sad But the truth of the matter is, he is far worse than all of that. This evil spirit that we call Satan and those whom he leads, the forces of evil, all these that we cannot see, they do far worse than suggest that we do bad things. They do far worse than, than leave us in states of hopelessness and depression. They are out to destroy us. Satan hates God. Satan, therefore, hates the people of God. The tricky thing for us is that we don't perceive it that way most of the time. Adam and Eve sure didn't. When Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from which they were told they should not partake. He was careful in the way that he approached the couple. They were not immediately put off by his physical form. But he deceived them into believing a lie, something which was compelling for them, something that was alluring to their hearts. It, it drew their affections away from God. And as Luther says in the hymn that we sang last week, his craft and power are great, but Luther adds, he's armed with cruel hate. On earth, it is not his equal. 
This means that he is out to destroy you and me. And he will do this by whatever means lay at his disposal. And Paul was concerned for his own heart that he would be drawn away and therefore destroyed. And therefore the cause of the gospel might be hindered. And he was concerned for this church that the same might happen. By God's grace, a a foothold had been laid in the city of Ephesus, this, this one church. Light had broken into centuries of darkness. And Paul wanted the darkness to not pervade once again into the hearts of these believers and back into this locale. And it is the same for us today. What Paul is calling us to in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, is to hope-filled perseverance. This means that he does not want the darkness to pervade our hearts once again. And he doesn't want the darkness to pervade our community or communities once again. This is a life and death kind of thing. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to us today through this ancient Word of God, words of hope and words of challenge, that we will persevere with full assurance of hope. So let's read once again from verse 10. We'll stop in the middle of verse 18, which is where we'll end today. This is the Word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having Fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. May God bless to us the reading of his word. We learned last week from verse 10 that we must fight by faith, trusting the Lord who has made us his own. Our enemy is dangerous, but we aren't left to fight alone. Our real battle is against unseen dangerous and relentless forces, and we will face many trials, but we must persevere by faith in our faithful Lord. Then Paul picks up that idea in verse 14, And he says, stand, therefore. This probably could have been translated a little more emphatically in our English versions. So let's look at verse 13. Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God and that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then it's though he is a general mustering his troops and he says, stand, therefore. This is battle that Paul calls the people to. As I said to you last week, one of Satan's great 
schemes in our experience is to lull us to sleep, to lead us to the faulty conclusion that all is well. We have this sneaking suspicion that things could get bad for us, but, but we'll deal with that when the time comes. But any good soldier, and we have some veterans here in our church, any good soldier knows that you have to be prepped for battle. You have to do your physical training. You have to be able to master your weapon. You have to wear your body armor. You have to know your maps and your orders and your rendezvous points. You better be prepped for battle. The difficult thing for us, and this is one of Satan's great schemes, is that he leads us to believe that, that all is well, and that when difficult times do come, that we'll somehow rouse ourselves to sleep and we'll make it. But Paul calls the church here to a kind of perseverance that is ever vigilant, always watchful. Some of you today may be facing an evil day, as Paul suggests in verse 13. But if you're not, it's coming. And this is a battle in which we find ourselves. We don't like that kind of language. Because the truth of the matter is, we like peace and we like comfort. And in some ways, if we're being honest in our lucid moments... We like God to be a dispenser of peace and comfort and little else. Here's what I mean. I'm not sure that the great idol of American culture is money. It's one of them, for sure. I think perhaps the great idol of American culture is security. Now, money helps provide that. Other things help provide that. But I think the great idol of American culture is security. That's why we have insurance for 19 different things, and a lot of us carry all of those. That's why we have gates in front of our houses and security systems. It's why we use organic sunscreen, whatever that means. It's why we eat particular foods that cost a little bit more, but we want to preserve the longevity of our lifespan. It's why we choose good schools for our kids, and we could go on and on. We do our best to insulate ourselves against anything that would be harmful. But there is something far worse than skin cancer or a bloated belly or not having disability insurance. There is something far worse than that, and that is death. And as I mentioned to you a while ago in the garden, Adam and Eve were led to believe that they would not die. Satan told them that. And we often ourselves are lulled into a false confidence that, that we are not at war and, and things are not that bad. But a lot of us have been around long enough now, if we take time for just a moment to, to consider and take stock, most of us have been around long enough to know people who confessed Jesus, who, who seemed to be people of the faith, 
but who now, some years later, aren't walking with him at all. For some of you, that's very close to home. It's a family member or a close friend. And you have seen people lose their faith altogether, having been lulled to sleep. And if we're being honest, sometimes we get close to that. We have become so sleepy, so lazy, so filled with idolatrous compulsion that we ourselves wonder, will we make it? Satan has done his work in us in such moments. So Paul says, stand. Fight the fight. But the hope of this passage is that we're not called to do this in our own strength. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Isaiah chapter 11. I want to make the case that Paul does not write Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 in a vacuum. But this came out of his understanding of the privileges that flowed to the people of God because of what Jesus had accomplished. And Isaiah prophesied of this. This is a passage that we often consider at Advent, at Christmas time, but it's incredibly relevant for us today. Beginning in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11, the prophet says, "...there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit." The idea here is that if you were to liken Israel to a tree... It looked as though in Isaiah's day in the 8th century B.C. that the experiment was over, that this people of God were anything but, that they had been incredibly unfaithful and the tree had been chopped down. But Isaiah, under inspiration of the Spirit, says, if you look closely at this stump that looks dead and hopeless, there is a shoot of life. And out of this shoot of life, the tree will regrow. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Seems like an oxymoron. How can a, a tender shoot be mighty? The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight, verse 3, shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor. The tender shoot becomes a judge and a ruler. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He's a divine warrior. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. And that leads us to Ephesians chapter 6. Paul did not just come up with a clever metaphor to help these Ephesian believers fight the devil. Paul was drawing conclusions upon what he knew of the enemy of God. The enemy of God had been there from the beginning, seeking to destroy the people of God and therefore discredit God. But from the very beginning, God promised that one would come and crush the head of the serpent. Who would this one be? He would come from the line of David. He would be a shoot springing forth from the stump of the tree of Jesse, the house of Israel. And he would grow into a judge and a divine warrior, robed not just in majesty, but clothed in, in the armor of battle, who would put down all evil and, and defend his people. 
So Paul does not write in a vacuum. Paul writes out of his understanding of the cosmic struggle between good and evil. But Paul knew the outcome of such a battle. The promised Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent would put down all evil. And therefore, the call to perseverance in Ephesians chapter 6 is not a call to go it alone, to muster up our own strength. Though we should live with sobriety, though we should be vigilant, we need not live in dread fear, for we know the one who will conquer, and he will conquer through us. In fact, Paul says in his letter to the church in Rome, that one day soon, God would trample the serpent under their feet. Which means that God will bring to pass all of His promises to put down evil through the church. Which means that we must not live a sleepy life. We must not live a romanticized life of good and evil, but realize that life and death are before us. That this really does matter. That the hearts of those we love, that our own hearts are in question. So we must wake up. We must join the battle, but not on our own strength, trusting in the one who is conquering and one day will fully conquer. So in verse 14, Paul calls them once again to stand. What he's saying there is that we must persevere by faith. It is true that all of those who have been justified in Christ, who have been declared righteous in Jesus, who have been made sons and daughters, who have been sealed by the Spirit, we saw both of those things in Ephesians chapter 1, they will make it to the end. Sometimes perhaps a little bit sloppily in evangelical theology, we have called this eternal security, that we are secure in God until the end. That is true. To put it very simply, you cannot lose your salvation if you are truly in Christ. Those who have been united to Christ will not be plucked out of the Father's hand. All that the Father gives to the Son will come and remain. However, alongside such promises, against the backdrop of these eternal gospel promises, the people of God are called to persevere. And the truth of the matter is, when we're in our 20s and 30s and 40s, things may be going along quite well. But will we end well? That's one of the things that I think about a lot. That I don't just want to start well. I want to end well. And because the hope of the gospel is real and, and I will forever be a son of God, I will forever be united to Jesus my Savior, I am called to stand. I am called to persevere by faith. Well, what's this look like in practical obedience? Well, first of all, we are to have confidence in God's Word. I would say that the whole armor of God that Paul suggests in verse 13 and then outlines in the verses that we're looking at today are some of the blessings, not all, but some of the blessings that flow to us in Christ. That we who are those that stand in the 
stream, to think of the metaphor of a river, that we who are those who stand in the stream of the blessings of salvation, that some of those are outlined for us here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. So what you have to think of is this. You are not called to muster up your own salvation or your own ability to persevere. You can't do that on your own. You won't make it. But because of what Michael read to us a bit ago from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, that we are those that exist and live in the power of God and hope in the power of God, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and death, That yes, indeed, we must persevere, but we do it in hope and faith because of what Christ has done for us. And so the first thing that Paul says is that we must stand having fastened on the belt of truth. So what Paul is saying is that we must persevere by faith, first of all, with confidence in God's Word. This would be the narrow message of the gospel the message of reconciliation, that we come back to God through Christ, that we don't affect our reconciliation to God by anything we've done. We can't merit our own righteousness no matter how hard we work. We can't maintain our righteousness by the things that we do, good or bad. So the truth that Paul mentioned at the beginning of verse 14 narrowly would probably mean the gospel, the truth of the gospel, renewal to God through Jesus. But it probably is a little broader than that. All that God has spoken. His Word, the Scriptures, the Bible. And this is the belt. This is kind of the thing that, that holds it all together. It keeps the armor on and, and working as it should in proper order. This means that our lives must have some direction, orderliness. Where does that come from? It comes first and foremost from our understanding of our position in Christ. That's the narrow message of the gospel. But more broadly, from the word itself, and we'll talk more about this at the end of our time today, but what Paul is saying here is that if we're going to stand, we must know what is true. We, we must know what our opposition is. We must know how to stand against it. Where do we learn that? We learn that in the Bible. The Bible illumines our path, the psalm says. Illumining our path, helping us to know what is true and also what is harmful. And if we've been Christians long enough, we know what this is like. When we live under the counsel of the Spirit through the Word, we can see our way ahead. Now, we may not know what's going to happen in September or October, but... But we can see what's coming for the day, which is why basically we should be in the Bible mostly every day. And you have to work out kind of what that means for you. I'm not going to set parameters for you. But, but basically every day you need illumination. You need a lens through which you can look at the world accurately. And, it, and as difficult as it is for us educated, enlightened Westerners to, to hear what I'm getting ready to say, it is true, left to ourselves, we are foolish. We will not see what's coming. We will, over, we will be overcome by 
by the forces arrayed against us, and, and we will falter. But the Word of God allows us to be aware that evil does exist and to see it when it's coming. Paul suggested in our section from last week that the devil is full of schemes into verse 11. What are the schemes of the devil? There's many. One of the first ones that comes to mind is that he tempts us. He tempts us with sex. That's an easy one. I don't mean easy to stand against. It's an easy one to suggest. Though easy to suggest, it seems still to trip so many of us up. Tempts us with that. Tempts us with, with wealth. He tempts us with the idol of comfort, which I suggested is so subtle and evil. He tempts us with places of, of authority, position. Satan does more than just tempt us. Satan often leads us to crippling fear and anxiety. For those of you who struggle with this, and a number of us do, an anxious heart is essentially a useless heart. People who are fearing the unknown, what might happen in their relationships or in their occupations or in their government, they are often, at best, ineffective. Satan can lead us to despair, to thinking there is no way ahead. Do you not think that Satan delights when thoughts of deep and dark depression where there seems to be no light, perhaps even leading to thoughts of ending one's life? Don't you think he delights in that? Satan often leads us to doubt, doubting the truth leading us further and further away from the very truth that can change our hearts and minds. Satan often leads us to self-confidence, another one of his schemes, to thinking that we are okay on our own. We don't need the people of God, so we neglect church. We don't need the Word of God, so we neglect the Bible. We don't need God's help, so we neglect prayer. Satan often leads us to isolation, not being with the people who can pull us along when we need it and who need us to pull them along when they need it. Has a culture ever been more personally isolated than ours? In more extreme cases, Satan can lead to heresy where we stop believing the truth altogether and come up with our own gospels. Satan has many schemes, and I've just suggested a few. How can you recognize them when they're coming? With the belt of truth, the Word of God. You have to have a lens through which you can look at the world. And as smart as you are, and there's some high IQ people in this crowd today, as smart as you are, just like me, you are days away from living like a fool. So what do you need? You need the Word of God to keep yourself in order, to give you eyes to see the belt of truth which keeps the armor on. 
So we are to persevere by faith with confidence in God's word. Secondly, we are to persevere by faith with assurance in Christ's imputed righteousness. It's a bit of a mouthful, and I almost didn't state it like that, but I wanted to because occasionally it's good for us to use precise words to communicate ideas. Paul says in the second part of verse 14 that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. What's this mean? Well, if you are basically savvy theologically, how would you answer this question? How much righteousness do you personally, intrinsically have? And you savvy theologian should answer, I have none. And if you are a relatively savvy theologian, you would probably shout it, right? You know you're supposed to do that. I don't have any of my own righteousness. There's nothing intrinsic within me that is righteous. In theological terms, we would say that you need alien righteousness. And I'm not just making that up to sound clever today. This is a good theological term. We need righteousness that comes from without us. I don't mean Martian righteousness. I mean righteousness that comes from without you, from outside of you granted to you. And therefore, we talk about imputed righteousness. This is righteousness that is granted. Because you don't have any, and you need some from outside of you, how will you get it? It has to be imputed to you, granted to you. How do you get it? You trust Jesus, who is full of it. And this is what the cross is all about, this double transaction. Our sin was credited to him, imputed to him. That wasn't fair. But when we place our faith in Jesus and repent of our sin, his righteousness, which was endless and boundless and free, is credited, imputed to us. It comes from outside of us, but is granted to us. And then God sees us in the Son. Righteousness from outside of us, imputed to us. How will you persevere in faith? With assurance that you don't have any righteousness, but it's been granted to you in Jesus. And so I say to you who are considering the claims of Christianity today, stop seeking for it on your own. Today is the day of salvation. Trust Jesus, the one who died to take your place. It was a substitute for your punishment. Who is eager and willing to grant you his righteousness if you will but trust him. For most of us who have already trusted Jesus, how prone are we? What propensity do we have? How likely are we to, to look for righteousness inside rather than outside of us? This is why we're so defensive whenever we're caught in sin. How quick are we to, to argue our own righteousness, to argue our case, to have hearts of defensiveness? Why do we do that? Because we still foolishly believe that there's something good inside of us that we can lay at the feet of God and that He will accept us. That we can put in front of people and they will think well of us. But we would do well to, to remind ourselves daily, and this does come from the Word of God that Paul suggests at the beginning of verse 14, because the Word of God doesn't just reveal to us that the world is evil. The Word of God also reveals to us that that there is a righteous one who delights in granting us his righteousness because we don't have any. So how do we stand against Satan? 
by trusting in righteousness which has been granted to us freely. We won't take time to turn here today, but I suggest that as a corollary study, if you're looking for something to study this week, that you look into the prophecy of Zechariah, specifically in Zechariah chapter 3. This is a bit of an obscure story, but there was a priest named Joshua, of course different than the political leader Joshua who had come many centuries before, but Zechariah prophesies and talks about this priest named Joshua. He talks about this scene where Satan accuses Joshua of being an unfit priest because he has dirty clothes on, depicting the fact that he has a dirty heart. And the fact of the matter is that's true. All of God's people for all of time, including God's leaders, have dirty hearts. But a beautiful thing happens. A transaction happens. The dirty garments depicting the dirty heart of the priest are removed from him, and he is given clean attire, representing the fact that his righteousness does not consist in being a good priest, praying the right prayers, sacrificing the right animals, being a good example in front of the people. His righteousness comes from God himself. Satan, who is full of craftiness and hatred, will whisper in your ear, you are not righteous. He will say to you that God does not accept you. All of this comes from the hiss of a forked tongue. If you live in this fear and in this pattern long enough, what will you do? You will, you will start to believe it. Unless the Word of God, the first thing that we are to be attired in, in the beginning of verse 14, unless that is counteracting the lies of Satan, we will give in to those lies. No matter how smart you are, no matter how strong you are, no matter what your spiritual heritage is, you are a few lies away from destruction. And don't think I'm being hyperbolic here today. I'm not. I've seen it over and over. The way we fight back against the hiss of the serpent, the one who is firing his darts at us, is to remember that we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. And this is why I say to you often, you must be drinking deeply from the well of the gospel all the time. Not just some date you wrote down in the flyleaf of your Bible saying, I asked Jesus into my heart sometime when I was eight. But that every day you are hoping in Jesus, your Savior. The gospel is not an antiquated message for whenever you were in primary school. The gospel is for every day. And because you don't have any righteousness, Jesus alone can give it to you and reconcile you to God and keep you in himself. You persevere by faith by remembering that you are standing firm in the righteousness of Jesus. So this is how you fight moralism. And we are all prone to moralism or legalism, trying to earn God's favor and keep ourselves in his favor. It can't happen. And while we should pursue holiness, this is part of the battle, while we should pursue righteousness and obey all the laws of God, we are only able to do this because of the righteousness which has been granted to us. So my brothers and sisters, remember very carefully that 
that you only are able to stand because of righteousness which has been granted to you. And you've got to drink from that well every single day. Thirdly, we must persevere by faith with rest in the gospel of peace. This is what Paul suggests in verse 15. Readiness, middle of verse 15. Some suggest that what Paul means here is that we're always ready to evangelize. That's a possible interpretation of this verse. In fact, as we come down to the end of the section, which we'll talk about next week, Paul does talk about evangelism. He asks them to pray for him that he will evangelize well. But that's probably not what he means in verse 15. The emphasis in verse 15 is on the readiness. How does the gospel of peace give us readiness? Well, it's sort of similar to what we just talked about with this breastplate. If I don't keep myself, but God keeps me through His Son... If I don't make myself acceptable, but I have been made acceptable through the righteousness of Jesus, then I can walk each day in humble confidence. The gospel that gives me peace, I will not be overcome by the evil one, strong though he may be. And though his whispers are in my ear that I may not make it, and then indeed I do evil things and I often still have an evil heart, I need not be overcome. For I am driven back to the gospel, the one alone that gives me rest. This is what Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 11 when He suggests that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. It doesn't always feel that way, does it? But I suppose that we will come to the end of our days and when we are with Him in eternity and we will look back and and know that we were kept, not by our own strength, but by His righteousness. So we can wake up each day not being freaked out, not living in dread fear, but knowing that the One who has saved us is saving us and one day will fully save us. That grants peace to our hearts. Future grace. What is the future? The battle has already been decided. It has not yet been fully won. There is coming a day when the Son of God, the Word of God, will come on a steed, if if that's literal, I don't know, and will put down all evil. And He'll do it with a sword that comes out of His mouth. And, And it won't be in doubt. The same way that He spoke the world into existence and called all of it good, will one day put down all that is bad and make it all good again. And He'll just speak it. The gospel of peace promises me that one day it'll all be okay. That all that is sad will come untrue. To be hobbit-like for just a moment. And therefore... I can be at peace and I can, I can rest now. I can be ready each day. I need not live in dread fear. I, I need not hole up and hide. But I can approach each day with confidence, not in myself, but in the one who will one day make all things new. We must pursue by faith, fourthly, with faith in our watchful Lord. Verse 16. 
Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Greek soldiers had a small sort of round shield, something sort of light, something they could carry into battle easily. Roman soldiers tended to carry something a little bit different. The original word that is translated into English here, shield, came from the same word that they got their word door from. And that's what the shield looked like. It was about two feet wide and four feet tall. And you have to remember that back in that day, most Roman soldiers would have been about five feet tall. People were not as tall back then due to nutrition and so forth. This shield would have covered most of their bodies. It was often covered in leather. They would soak in water before they would go into battle. They would often have a rim of metal all the way around it. And then often a sort of further shield right in the middle so that if anything was shot into it like an arrow or was chopped at with a sword or maybe shot at with an arrow that the metal piece in the middle would knock it down. It was a formidable defensive weapon. This was what would have been in the mind of the Ephesian believers as they heard Paul tell them to take up the shield of faith. It was to defend them entirely. It was formidable. But we don't feel very formidable. I often feel vulnerable. But he keeps me. The one out of whose hand I cannot be plucked. The one who is the shepherd of the sheep. The one who lives to make intercession for his people. The one upon whose I, his face shines, his eye is on me. James says in James chapter 1 that there is no variation or shadow of turning with him. He never changes. He watches over me. The God of Israel will never slumber or sleep. He protects me. And so I trust him. So I persevere by faith in my watchful Lord who protects me. Fifthly, we persevere by faith with hope in our settled salvation. Paul says in verse 17 to take up the helmet of salvation. Our minds are protected. Our head is where our faculties lie, how we make our way through life. And Paul says that we are to take up the helmet of salvation, remember that our verdict is in. And one day our salvation will come to full completion. And just as God has kept His promises to His people in the past, He will keep His full promises of salvation to us. We remember who we once were, Paul suggests in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were formerly children of wrath. He suggests in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 that we don't walk like we used to. We were saved from that. Why would we go back to such a futile lifestyle that, that could not satisfy and that led us to the path of destruction? The helmet of salvation suggests that we have been saved from all of that, futility and even worse, death. And so we don't give in to the former ways. We don't give in to the lies of Satan. 
the helmet of salvation protects our minds and helps us make discerning decisions. The sixth thing that Paul says is that we must persevere by faith with the power of the Scriptures. This, as has often been recognized, is the only offensive weapon in the armor. So Paul says in verse 17, to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Another corollary study, which I would suggest to you, is in Matthew chapter 4. You also see this in Luke's Gospel, where the devil is allowed to tempt Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasts that whole time, and then Satan comes at the end of the fasting when he is at his weakest and tempts Jesus in three different ways, with power and authority. And he was allowed to do that because he was given some measure of sway over the world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And he offers Jesus some kind of dominion, which is ironic because Jesus made Satan to begin with. But Jesus fights him as a real man, not just as the creator of all things. And Jesus fights him by doing what? In all three temptations, he quotes the Scriptures. Therefore, doing what Adam didn't do. Adam didn't quote God's Word back to the serpent. He gave in. Jesus is the second Adam who overcomes. And how are we to overcome the devil? How can we take up an instrument of of offense to some degree, which still defends us? We must know the Word of God. I've already suggested to you in verse 14 that this belt of truth holds it all together. The truth of God's Word holds the armor together. It it gives it order. If we are going to to stand against the flaming darts of the evil one, verse 16, we, we must do it by wielding the Word of God. Probably is a good idea to, to memorize portions of it. And if nothing else, to know it well enough that you know where to turn whenever temptation does come. Whenever He compels you to live in fear or despair or doubt or self-confidence or isolation. That you know the Word of God so well that it permeates the way that you think that you're able to fight Him in all of His schemes. So again, you must be people of the Word. Not living on the vapors of a sermon from Sunday, but in some way, daily, making it your regular practice to live under its sway, to know it well, to treasure it up. This is the most rational thing that you can do. And it's not just a mechanical, legalistic thing. It's not so you seem holy and righteous whenever you meet with one of the elders for discipleship. It's not just doing it with your kids so that you can answer that you have family devotions. The most rational thing that you can do is know the Word of God and treasure it so that you can live. The last thing that Paul suggests at the beginning of verse 17, verse 18 rather, is that we are to pray without ceasing. Remember when I was a kid, I came across a book which was all about the armor of God. I was 16 or 17. Um, I had come out of a period of life where I had been very unfaithful to God. And I was fearful that I would return there. So every morning before high school would start, and it started pretty early, I'd get up 
and I would get down on my knees because that seemed appropriate, and I would lay beside my little twin bed, and I would pray through the various pieces of the armor of God. I didn't understand them as well as I do now, but I, I tried to sort of put them on through prayer. I suggest that that might be a good idea for you as you start your day. Just as importantly, that you would do this throughout the day. As Paul suggests in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that we are to pray without ceasing. What might this look like? God, it's 12 o'clock. I'm going into a meeting. I need your help. I need to remember your word. I need to remember that I don't have any righteousness of my own. I need to remember that you will win the battle. I need to know that you are always watching over me. I need to know that my salvation is sure and secure. I need to know that I can fight all the temptations of the evil one. Help me now. And whether you pray through each of these six pieces of armor or not, There should be a spirit of prayer that pervades all of our lives that prepares us to deal with the reality of a difficult life, one that is permeated by struggle and evil and an enemy that seeks to overcome us. So, brothers and sisters, we are to persevere by faith, praying at all times, trusting the blessings that flow to us in Christ, His Word, His righteousness, the gospel, his watch care over us, the promise of future, sure salvation, and his word, which allows us to extinguish and to fight against the devil as he seeks to fight against us. So we must persevere, but not alone. We persevere by faith. It's a battle, it is real. Our enemy hates us, and he is pure evil. But God has not left us alone. He will always be with us. He has granted us His Son. He has granted us His Word. And though we must be sober, we must fight with joy-filled faith, for He will keep us until the end. Let's pray.